I don't need to remind you that we have just celebrated Independence Day, July 4th, the day that is designated as the birthday of the United States of America, our beloved nation, a time for all Americans to celebrate God's goodness, to reflect upon the blessings that have come to us in this land that God has raised up and given so many privileges and blessings and opportunities to. And the time, I think, when all Americans should reflect upon our beginning and the principles of government that were brought together to bring this nation to birth. We come in our sermon series today to 1 Peter chapter 2. The next paragraph is verses 13 through 17, which talks about the Christian's relationship to government. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It is quite coincidental, some might say, that this particular text lands on the, on the Sunday closest to July 4. I would say that it is quite providential that God has caused this particular text to be the next one in our sequence. If people are not here regularly and they don't know uh, how we approach our pulpit ministry here at Beacon, they might say, oh, why are you preaching on that this particular Sunday? And though there are times when we take up special sermons for special occasions, the usual answer to that question is, because it's next. That's why we're preaching on that today, because it's next in our preaching series, and it comes next in our series through Peter's first epistle. Today we're just going to take verses 13 through 15 because there is more in these three verses than we can probably properly address this morning. And I want us to look at four things in this text, and first of all, let's notice the contextual relationship indicated in my translation by that opening word, therefore. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. A connective particle, which actually is not in some of the Greek manuscripts and therefore is not in some of the English translations. But whether it is present in your translation or not, I think it is obviously and clearly implied. And what Peter tells us in these verses ties to the immediate context which precedes. And really to those two verses, because as we saw last Lord's Day, verse 11 begins a new section in Peter's epistle. So the context of our text today in verses 13, 14, and 15 only goes back to the preceding two verses. There Peter said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe Glorify God in the day of visitation, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man 
for the Lord's sake. And then verses 11 and 12, we are told that Christians are to maintain exemplary conduct before the unbelieving world. We have a responsibility not only to live with our eye toward God and upon His Word, but also to the unconverted people around us and how our lives are going to impact them toward or away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so exemplary conduct among believers, Peter tells us, will put to silence those who slander Christians when God visits them with the truth. When the day of visitation, their day of visitation, you remember no definite article in the Greek that could be translated a day of visitation. When a day of visitation comes to them, if, if we have been faithful in living a godly life before them, then God will use that testimony as a powerful impact in their lives when he shows them the truth. And many times God will call unbelieving skeptics and hostile slanderers to faith in Christ, and part of the reason will be the conduct of God's people. And that's what he's told us in verses 11 and 12. So how does our text today in verses 13 through 15 relate to this context? Well, this is the first example of good works that Peter had in mind. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king of supreme or to governors and so forth. Do good deeds, good works, so that a skeptical world may recognize your good and glorify God in heaven. Like Christ said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But what good works does Peter have in mind? And probably not the ones that would first come to our mind. Probably not the ones that would first or second or third or maybe even fourth or fifth come to our mind. If we were thinking about the good works that we believe might commend us before a hostile and skeptical world. But Peter, directed by the Spirit of God, says number one on the list of good works which God will use to silence the critic and even to bring some of them to faith in Jesus Christ is your obedient submission to civil government. And so the therefore, or whatever the connection is to the immediate context, underscores the critical importance of this subject. Our attitude toward government is not entirely a matter of style or taste or even political persuasion. There may be elements of that that will will, uh, shape our thinking and will vary a great deal from individual to individual, even among Christians. But there are some basics that we must always keep in mind, and we must never let our political views become more important than the instructions of God's Word. We are Christians first, and our citizens of our nation second, and our whatever we are within our nation, politically speaking, third. And so Peter is telling us that a significant part of our Christian testimony is how Christians relate themselves to government. And we need to think about our attitude and posture toward government and what that communicates to the world around us. 
We need to get this instruction right in our personal lives. We need to get these instructions right in our churches. We need to teach these instructions to our children to subdue within them this Adamic spirit of rebellion that rises up within us all. It's a bit inconsistent to teach our children that they must submit to parental authority, but by our attitude we teach them that it's all right for them to maintain a rebellious posture towards civil authority. That's inconsistent. And so we secondly take up the general requirement. And the general requirement is stated in the first part of verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man. The word submit is a military term. It means to station or rank yourselves under. It means to arrange in formation under a commander. It means to obey. It's speaking about subordination to a superior authority. And it is reflexive. We are to do this ourselves. We are to do this voluntarily. This speaks of, number one, acknowledged subordination, and number two, active subordination. It begins by acknowledging that there is a requirement that we submit, that there are authorities designed by God that are above us in the civil world, governmental authorities, and that these are legitimate authorities raised up by God, appointed by God, designed by God, given to human society by God. We must acknowledge the rightful place of those authorities in the lives of all people, especially Christians. And secondly, we must actively submit to them. It's not just enough to agree technically and theoretically that we do have this responsibility, but we must so order our lives that we are demonstrating our general submission to such authorities day by day. We are to recognize, in other words, the principle of human authority, a principle designed by God. We are to submit to every ordinance of man, every ordinance of man, a phrase that more literally would be rendered, every human creation. And in the context, obviously talking about Authority structures, authority structures that are created, human institutions as they have been created. You say created by who? Created by God or created by man? Well, the evidence of this text and also the one in Romans 13 would indicate that that it is both. The answer to that question is both. The powers that be are ordained by God. There are no authorities except by God. The ordinance of God, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13. And so human institutions, as they have been created by men, are evidently also created by God. Those that God does not desire, he dissolves. Those that God intends to use for his purposes, he brings into being and he sustains for as long as they are carrying out his purposes. And we are to submit ourselves to every human institution according to this text. Actually, this phrase that introduces our section is really even broader than the subject of civil government. Submit yourselves to every 
ordinance of man, every human creation, every human institution. And Peter seems to have in mind not only the civil authorities that he's going to talk about first, but also other relationships that he talks about second and third. Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. A broad, general statement that Christians are to be in submission to all different kinds of human authority, all different relationships of human structure, whether it be in the home, between husband and wife, or between parents and their children, whether it be in schools, which have been organized, and there are levels of of human authority that have been created for the well-running of those schools, without which the school would, would not be able to function, would break down into anarchy and dissolution, whether in the area of business and commerce, whether in the area of the church, these various human institutions have levels of authority, and we are to recognize that God has designed these, God has created these, God has brought them into being, God has sustained them for his own purposes. God has established authority at all different kinds of levels, in all different institutions for orderly human society. Man's Adamic nature is such that without this, there would be anarchy and rebellion and total chaos. And there's even another grammatical reason to believe that this first phrase applies to more than simply civil government, because the general command of verse 13, submit yourselves, that verb governs a great deal of what follows, because these other two verses I read, for example, verse 18 and chapter 3, verse 1, as well as some others, contain participles that assume a main verb that turns out to be this verb. And so it's obvious that he's talking about principles and structures of authority in general. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, every human institution, every human authority structure. But then he applies it, first of all, in the area of civil authority. And we come thirdly to the scope of civil authority. Number one, the contextual relationship. Number two, the general requirement. Number three, the scope of civil authority. We are to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And so the first example of how we are to submit ourselves to authority in general is how we are to submit ourselves to civil government. And he begins by telling us that our submission is first of all to be to the supreme ruler, to the king. Notice that king is in the singular, governors is in the plural, and I think that's very significant because in nearly every nation there is 
a supreme authority, and then there are subordinate authorities. And that certainly was true in the context in which Peter writes. There was a king, and in Peter's day, he was the Roman emperor by the name of Nero, who reigned from A.D. 54 to 68. And though his technical title was not king, it was Caesar or emperor. And though there are Greek words that Peter could have used to designate that specifically, he used a more general term that will apply to every other situation. The king, in a general sense, that is, whoever is the supreme ruler, whether he be called pharaoh or emperor or president or whoever he may be called, the king, the the, the general authority that is in the first place, the first position of authority, is the one that, first of all, we must submit ourselves to. Evidently, God does not consider one-man rule to be illegitimate to the king. In most cases, that meant a king who had almost unrivaled power and authority to the king, who in many cases was close to what we would consider a dictator today. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme. Furthermore, ungodly rulers do not of themselves create an exception. There are some exceptions. We'll look at that in a moment. But simply the fact that the king is ungodly does not create an exception to this requirement. Remember who was the king when Peter wrote these words? Nero. What kind of a king was he? Exceedingly wicked and ungodly, almost beyond imagination. What does Peter say in regard to himself and those that he's writing to immediately and writing this epistle to those who were who were living in the Roman Empire, what does he say to them? Submit yourselves to the king as supreme. Application to them until A.D. 68, submit yourself to the authority of Nero, the supreme ruler of the empire in which you live and where God has placed you. So ungodly rulers do not of themselves create an exception to this requirement, nor does the erosion of former restraints create an exception to this requirement. If you know anything about Roman history, you know that there was a time in the uh, B.C., but the late B.C.s, when the Roman government was a great deal more democratic than it was at the time when Peter wrote. There was, after all, a Roman Senate, wasn't there? And there was a time, really, when the Roman Senate seemed to have the, the, the uh, majority of the recognized power and the, the emperor, the Caesar, wasn't even called an emperor initially, did not have as much power. And then slowly there, there became an erosion of the power of the Senate and a, a magnification of the power of the emperor until in Peter's day the Senate was almost just a, a um, figurehead type of Senate. It was almost a puppet Senate that did the will of the emperor. 
There, many people might have argued that the emperor's authority in this day was illegitimate, that he had, he had usurped authority that was not rightfully and legally given to him. But in that very context, Peter says, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Submit yourself to the king as supreme. And these are things we need to remind ourselves of because they don't come easily to us in our Adamic fallenness and they don't come easily to us in our American context. We have some very strong ideas of what constitutes legitimate government. And we thank God for the limited form of government, the government by the consent of the governed principle that we have in our land. We thank God for that. That's a wonderful blessing, a wonderful privilege, but we must understand that is not necessarily biblically required. God allowed that. God raised up this government. God raised up this nation. God is as much the author of what we have here as he was the author of what Peter had there. God is the author of both. And Peter is telling us that kings, all kings, rule by God's decree. Every king or queen, every emperor or president, every Caesar and dictator rule by God's decree. Daniel 2.20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He removes kings and raises up kings. He takes them down when they no longer fulfill his purposes, he raises them up. When they do fulfill his purposes, the obvious implication of that, the inescapable implication of that is, if a man, or a woman, but if a ruler is ruling, then as long as they're ruling, evidently God wants them to rule. Because when God doesn't want them to rule anymore, he's going to remove them. And in that situation, Peter said, submit yourself to every ordinance of man, to the king as supreme. This is exactly what Paul teaches in the passage we read earlier in Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Paul also writing in the days of Nero. Therefore, he says, whosoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Whoever resists, resists the authority of God. It's not just resisting the authority of the ruler. It's resisting the authority of God who appointed the ruler. And so, first of all, There must be submission to the supreme ruler, that is the king. But secondly, there must be submission to subordinate rulers, because he goes on to say, or to governors, now plural. Again, a general term. There is a specific use of the term governor. We find that as a title. Felix was a governor, and Pilate was a governor, and so forth. And that has specific meaning within the Roman structure. But here, it is obviously a general term for any subordinate ruler or authority. So we've got the supreme authority, the king, singular. We've got the subordinate authorities, governors, plural, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. 
Subordinate representatives sent by him. Sent by who? Sent by the king. They have derived authority and they are sent by him. And furthermore, we are told what is the primary purpose of civil government. It is, number one, to restrain evil, and number two, to promote good. And Paul tells us exactly the same thing in Romans chapter 13. These authorities are raised up, number one, for the punishment of evildoers, and number two, for the praise of those who do good. Now, these are instructions for the rulers, as well as for us to understand why God ordained government. And the purpose of government is to restrain evil, that is to punish the evildoer, that is to avenge wrongs. Government has not only the right but the responsibility to avenge wrong. What is denied to the individual is required by government. And of course government is carried out by individuals who have positions in government. But when people are, are acting as a government agent... They are not acting as individuals when they restrain, when they punish, when they take a life that has committed a capital crime. They are not acting as individuals. They are acting as representatives of government. And God gives to government responsibilities that are denied to individuals. We need to know that or we won't be able to sort things out. We'll be very confused. Some Christians oppose capital punishment on the ground that is a violation of the commandment, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt do no murder. But obviously it's not. That's to individuals. But in that very same context, God goes on and spells out a number of capital offenses that require capital punishment. God is not confused and God is not contradictory. But individuals may not take lives. We cannot take the law into our own hands. But when, when individuals are acting as agents of government, then they have responsibilities which they must carry out to restrain evil, to punish the evildoer, to bring the judgment of God upon evildoers, and to promote good, to encourage right behavior, and to discourage wrong behavior. You say, well, governments that aren't doing that, then they need to be overthrown. Well, maybe so, but keep in mind that there is no government that's ever done this perfectly. And the Roman government of Peter and Paul's day did not do this perfectly, but they do do this in a general sense. If they didn't, there would be anarchy and chaos in society. We can't hold a standard of perfection to government and say if they don't do this perfectly, then everything God said is canceled any more than we can say that what God says about husband-wife relationships, if if they don't obey everything God says perfectly, then all that's canceled. Any more than we can say in regard to parent-child relationships that if a parent doesn't live a perfect life, then his children are not required to obey him and so forth. We can't use the standard of perfection to cancel what God has said. We recognize that these are the things that government is supposed to do. And we also recognize that governments, like, like uh, every one of us in our spheres of life, do not obey God perfectly. Even Christians don't obey God perfectly. And sometimes governments are, are terribly derelict and negligent in what is their function, what they are supposed to do. And Christians can certainly be a witness to remind government of what their God-ordained purpose is, but always respectfully. 
Now, I come to the unstated exceptions, and Peter doesn't deal with exceptions here, but the Bible does. He actually hints an exception, I think, when he says in verse 13, For the Lord's sake, therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. In other words, in everything that does not contradict his revealed will. The reason you submit yourself to human authority is because you are pleasing the Lord. And your highest responsibility is to please the Lord. So if government requires something of you that is a, an obvious violation of that which God has commanded or required, then your responsibility is always to the higher authority. And the highest authority is God. The highest authority is Jesus Christ. He is Lord. All other authorities are under Him. There is a rank and a subordination here. And He is Lord. And so we do this for the Lord's sake. And that means in nothing that contradicts His revealed will. And that interpretation or understanding of this phrase is certainly reinforced many times elsewhere in the Bible. We remember how God commended the Hebrew midwives for disobeying the king's command. Why? Because it was a command in violation of the word of God. A pharaoh said in Exodus 1.16, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. They deliberately disobeyed a direct command of the king. Because they recognized the king doesn't have the right to command us to murder. God says thou shalt not kill. And we can't take innocent life. When God gives the authority of capital punishment into the hands of government, it is to punish the evildoer. It is not to take innocent life. Pharaoh has crossed the boundary. We can't do what God commands us not to do. And what was God's response to their disobedience to the king? Verse 20, 20, Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. He gave them good husbands, he gave them families, he gave them children, he blessed them because they feared God more than the king. So yes, there are exceptions. I remind you of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, who were commanded to bow down and worship an idol, a false image, which is a direct contradiction of the word of God. And when the king hauled them up before himself and acquired, required accountability and demanded that they submit to him. We read in verse 16 of Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, for this is the case, or if this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, if this is the case that you throw us into the furnace if we won't bow. But if not, verse 18, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. The king had commanded something which God had forbidden. 
Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. The king can't require something which God forbids. The king can't forbid something which God requires. And if he does, we must obey God rather than man. And it wasn't it Peter himself who taught us that in the New Testament when the Sanhedrin commanded the apostles not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ? Acts 4.18, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can't obey you above God. We will submit ourselves to you under God. We will gladly obey you as a subordinate submission to God, but we can't obey you in something that God forbids or that God commands and requires. And it came up again in chapter 5. The council asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Peter and the other apostles. And in the other text, Peter and John. So obviously there is an understood exception which Peter himself states very clearly in Acts. And which he expects will be understood as he gives these instructions in 1 Peter chapter 2. But we need to realize that such exceptions generally are rare. They don't come up that often in the biblical account. And you'll see how Peter and the apostles generally submitted themselves to authority, except in those occasions where they were required to directly violate the law of God. You see how Daniel himself and how the three Hebrew children, we called them, who really weren't children, but anyway, that's what we call them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you see how they generally related to a pagan king in their day, submissive, obedient, helpful, gracious, humble in their relationship to government. And only when they were commanded to do something that was a direct violation of God's higher command, God's higher law, did they violate the command of the king. And so there are exceptions that we must understand, but we need to understand what the exceptions are and not turn virtually everything into an exception, not try to carve out exceptions in various ways that we uh, imagine and we justify and we put together why it is not our responsibility to submit to this authority and that authority. We're talking about the scope of civil authority. And what about the American situation? In America, of course, we have a constitutional government and we have government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We have a a republic that's some form of a democracy. And some people, therefore, conclude, some Christians, therefore, conclude that this is a total exception to everything that the Bible teaches otherwise. What Peter teaches us only applies if there's a king. 
What Paul teaches us only applies if there's a king. doesn't apply in the American situation. And it does require some thought, doesn't it? When the people are Caesar, at least supposed to be, when the government is only supposed to rule by the consent of the governed, then what is the attitude and posture of God's people toward that government? It ought to be very obvious that our present government in America has grown far beyond the original design of our founding fathers and the Constitution of the United States of America. But it also ought to be obvious that even in our form of government, which we prefer, we like that better than the king. Our forefathers didn't like King George. I won't get into that. But uh, we have a form of government that is of the people and by the people and for the people. But it ought to be obvious even in this situation, unless everybody votes the same way, there will always be laws that I did not give consent to. There will always be officials that I did not choose. Even in a democratic government, there are going to be things that I didn't personally consent to or I didn't personally ask for that I must submit to. And we need to be careful that we don't take this principle of government by the consent of the governed, which means basically it has boiled down to majority vote, more or less, and take that to mean that I as an individual must consent to every law, to every official, or else I'm not required to submit. That is obviously contrary to what the Bible teaches. If that's your understanding of the principle of government by the consent of the governed, then you have taken an American principle, which is not enshrined in Scripture, and elevated that above the plain statements of God's Word. We are grateful for this form of government, that God has delivered to us, but there's nothing about American constitutional government, there's nothing about the democratic form of government that cancels out these plain commands and statements and requirements of Scripture for God's people. The Greeks had some form of democracy that worked for a while, and that Roman Senate that I talked about that was operating in in the era before Christ was really a reflection of that Greek form of democratic government. And that had all eroded. And Peter doesn't say, now, when the king usurps the authority that should belong to the people or should belong to the Senate and is not operating with the consent of the governed, then this no longer holds true. In that very situation, he said, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king of supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And so the principle is the same, no matter whether we're talking about American constitutional government or whether we're talking about kings and authorities, the principle is the same. And that is that we must submit unless our government requires us to disobey God. We must submit unless our government requires us to sin against God. For us to fail to submit is for us to sin against God. 
for us to fail to submit when government is not requiring us to sin against God is for us to sin against God in our failure to submit. We have to be careful that we don't sin against God in either way, that we don't sin against God by cowardly caving in to a requirement of government that is illegitimate because it contramands the law of God, but we must also be careful that we don't sin against God by refusing to submit to anything, to everything that does not require us to contradict the law of God. We've got to be careful. There's area for sin in two directions here. And so that that applies to American civil government as it exists today, as it has developed today, as it has eroded today, as it has strayed today from the beginning principles and founding principles. Do you think that that has consternated God and has turned American government into something that God didn't want and God didn't, didn't approve of and God didn't decree and God doesn't want to allow? Or do you think that even the evolution and erosion of American government as we see it today is part of what is designed by God? The powers that be are ordained by God. The authorities that have been raised up have been raised up by God. We who understand more clearly than some Christians the sovereignty of God in all things surely should understand this principle. If God didn't want it this way, it wouldn't be this way. And it is this way. And here's what our responsibility is to it. At all levels. Federal government, state government, local government, Supreme Court, traffic court, Scriptures are clear. Now, number four, we come to the reason for submission. Why do we do this? There's several reasons. Three, actually. Number one, because it honors the Lord. Back to verse 13. For the Lord's sake, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. This is a distinctly Christian motive. Nobody but Christians will submit for this reason. Many citizens will submit because they don't want the unwelcome consequences if they don't. They don't want the punishment. They don't want the consequences. Paul deals with that, that we as Christians should submit not only out of fear, but also for conscience sake. And that's exactly what Peter's getting at here. We submit for the Lord's sake. We have a higher motive than other people, a distinctly Christian motive for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, because Christ exemplified this very kind of submission. Study the life of Christ and see how he related to the authorities in his day. Now, he did verbally correct and confront authorities very boldly, but he never tried to usurp their position or power. In fact, he told people not to do that. He even said in regard to the Pharisees, you do what they say because they sit in Moses' seat. They weren't good representatives of Moses. Blind leaders of the blind, full of corruption, hypocrisy, as Christ pointed out. But you, you still submit to them in everything that is true and right. And, of course, you must not in that which violates the word of God. So Christ exemplified this kind of submission in his life. If he hadn't, he wouldn't have been crucified. 
And Christ wills this form of submission as a Christian testimony. This is what he tells us to do. And Christ promises to use this form, this kind of submission, for eternal good. Back to verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. By your good works, which they observe. Glorify God in the day of visitation. What good works which they observe? Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Those good works. So, reason number one, it honors the Lord. Reason number two, it reflects God's will. This might be a reinforcement of the first one, but we find it stated in this way in verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. This is the will of God, to recognize God-ordained positions of human government. That's the will of God for us to do that. This is the will of God, to obey God's sovereign authority. We honor the sovereign authority of God by recognizing the human authorities which God has ordained. Number three, it silences our critics. As verse 15 tells us that by doing good, by doing good, put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And this is the good that he has in mind. By doing good, put to silence, literally muzzle. Muzzle. The ignorance of foolish men. Muzzle them. Restrain them. Render them speechless. The ignorance, a word that means willful, hostile rejection of the truth. They're not ignorant because they haven't had the exposure to the truth. They're ignorant because they have willfully rejected the truth which they have. And they are foolish because anyone who opposes God and His truth is most foolish. So these are the most hardened people you can imagine and the most unlikely to ever change. Those who have willfully rejected truth and yet the Bible says that God will use the good works, namely the submissive attitude and action of his people toward government to muzzle these kinds of people. You say, I don't see how that's going to work. He didn't ask us to figure out how it's going to work. He just told us this is what God does. He expects us to believe it and obey it. Exemplary submission to government has to be the main good work that he has in view here. Undoubtedly, there are other things as well. We talked about some of those last Sunday. But in this context, exemplary submission to government has to be the primary good work that God uses to silence the ignorance of foolish men who are hostile to God and to his people and to his word. You see, this is a reminder that in all things, doing good must always be defined by God, not by us. We don't decide what is good and then say, we're going to do this good, and God should be pleased. That's like Cain offering his own offering. God ought to be pleased with this offering. Looks good enough to me, but God wasn't pleased. 
And a lot of God's children, I'm afraid, are that way in this very area. Well, these are the good works that ought to commend the Christian testimony before God. These are the good works that God ought to honor and bless, but not these. And we've got to let God define good works as he chooses to define them. So we should take some lessons from from this in conclusion. Number one, we should recognize our propensity, our propensity toward rebellion, our propensity to not want any authority. And we need to realize that this has strong spiritual liabilities. For many people, this is the barrier to their salvation. They will not bow the knee to the authority of God, to the authority of Christ in their lives. And even after we're saved, we still have too many remnants of our damning fallenness. So we still carry this general, don't nobody tell me what to do attitude. And that's got to be reined in. So number one, we should recognize our propensity. Number two, we need to guard our attitudes. There should be no spirit of perpetual rebellion and perpetual hostility among the people of God. For Christ's sake, for Christ's sake, we must be gracious and submission, submissive and, rep- and supportive of government. I confess I haven't always understood this, and I haven't always been a good example of that. I'm trying to be, as I have learned more about it. It's easy to grow up with an, with an attitude of just sort of general belligerence against government and suspicion of everything governmental. Well, of course, Government is made up of fallen sinners. There's, there's much that's wrong and there's much to be suspicious of. But that's not the attitude that we should have as God's people. The difference between God's people and the, the unbeliever who has this general attitude of rebellion is that we don't manifest that kind of rebellion. That's what marks us out as different. Third, we should weigh our involvements. In relationship to government, United States government requests citizenship participation. We are asked to vote. They plead with us to vote. Government asks us to do that. We should do it. It can be just as much a bad attitude to say, I ain't going to do that. I ain't going to cooperate. I don't believe in that. This is the form of government that God has given us. The government requests that we participate. We should do so submissively. We should also recognize the strategic opportunity in that for the people of God. And we should do it. We should participate as our government asks us to do. Nero didn't ask Peter to participate, but our government asks us to. Do it. That's an act of submission to government. I believe in the separation of church and state, so I don't believe in voting. Then you're carrying an attitude of rebellion against government authority that asks you to participate. But in weighing our involvements, we also must be careful the degree of partisan support and opposition which we Manifest. I'm going to say something that may shock some of you, but surely we should understand this by now. God is not a Republican. 
not a Democrat either. <laughs> God is not a Republican. And I don't think it does our Christian testimony very much good for the world to perceive Bible-believing Christians as a Republican voting bloc. You say, well, what, what choices do we have? Well, we'll have to work on that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't vote Republican, but I'm just saying I, we've got to be careful. We've got to weigh these things. That, that what, what our level of involvement is doesn't send the wrong message. We've got higher issues, higher principles, higher standards as Christians. I would encourage us to consider neutral areas of civic involvement, becoming involved as poll workers and so forth. Not that we shouldn't be involved in any other way. We should and can as, as citizens. But we've got, to, we've got to view all these things as to our Christian testimony as well. And it may be that in more neutral areas of, of enthusiastic participation, we end up having more influence than we, than we will have if we get thoroughly involved in, in what appears to be totally partisan Participation, because of course, when you totally support one party, that makes you automatically an enemy of everybody in the other party. That makes you an enemy of about half the people in this country that you're trying to win to Christ, but now they perceive you with hostility because you've sided yourself with the other group. I'm just asking you to think, as I've had to think and rethink some of these things. The bottom line is this. We must demonstrate our trust in God's wisdom because God knows best how to influence society. And God knows best how to enhance our Christian influence. And he tells us here a way that he will powerfully use. And we need to surrender to the wisdom of God. We need to submit to what God has said. We need to acknowledge that his wisdom is far superior to ours. We need to do what he says and trust him to use it. Humbly submitting to human authority as much as possible and trusting God through it all. That's what Peter tells us to do, shall we pray. Father, help us. It's not easy to get all of these relationships right in this world in which we live. But your word does guide us. Oh Lord, help us to study it, to know it, to believe it, to apply it. And trust you to use it powerfully in this dark and wicked world in which we live. As we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.